0: Well, thanks to Radio 3 New Generation artist Alina Ibrahimova for that fabulous playing there. That's the first big theme in Max Brook's Violin Concerto Number no. 1 in G minor, played there beautifully for us by Alina Ibrahimova with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted today by Edward Gardner. Now, Bruch has to be the ultimate one-work composer, because although this G minor concerto of his is one of the most popular works in the whole classical repertoire, it actually is virtually the only work of his that anyone hears played today. In fact, though, it's the first of three concertos that he wrote. Now, I wonder how many of you have even heard of the other two concertos, let alone actually heard them played. One person at the back there, Uh, well that's one more than I was expecting. For some reason, which is what I hope we're going to be discovering in this program, this concerto has achieved a popularity that's way out of proportion with anything else that Max Brook wrote in his long composing career. But the interesting thing was, in his own day, it was a very different story. In his own day, he was very famous as a composer, not just for this violin concerto, but for all sorts of other works, for choral works, for dramatic works, for symphonies. And I found the other day a volume of the classic dictionary on music, Grove's Dictionary of Music, for 1904, when Bruch was still alive. And there are pages about Bruch. And then if you go and look for entries in the dictionary on composers who we now think are great, like Bruckner or Mahler, who were around at the same time as Bruck, their entries are tiny and full of mistakes. So that's a fascinating example of how someone's reputation can change. In his own day, Bruch was one of the most famous composers in the world. Now it's just this one piece of his that anyone ever plays. It's a fascinating example of how a reputation can change. It makes you wonder who perhaps that we make a big fuss of today that people will forget very soon after their death, it does happen. This concerto, the Violin Concerto Number 1, was written in 1868, and one of the reasons it's so popular is because it's full of fabulous tunes. There are quite a few critics these days who tend to put the concerto down simply because it's popular. In fact, there's always a kind of snootiness about anything that's popular, as though there must be something wrong with it for having become so popular with people. It is a very popular piece, but it's also a very good piece. It's also very cleverly and imaginatively put together, and that's what we want to pull out. I think, today in this program. One thing that's interesting about this concerto is the way it makes use of a new kind of character in violin playing, a character that was very much identified with the gypsies in the 19th century. In the Romantic period, and particularly in the latter half of the 19th century, there was a sudden wave of new interest in gypsies who'd been treated with a lot of suspicion up till then. One of the things the gypsies stood for, it seems, was a kind of freedom because the 19th century was a time when people were very repressive. There was an awful lot of talk about what was right and proper and what wasn't. And there were certain subjects that were very, very difficult to discuss openly in polite society. The gypsies, of course, stood for a kind of freedom that read went completely counter to that, particularly when it came to matters of love. And that's an aspect, I think, of this concerto that's rather striking at its time and was to be hugely influential. There's an awful lot of what I think men later years came to be identified as really sexy style of violin playing. There's an example of that near the beginning in what that theme that Elena played just a moment or two ago. You listen particularly at the end of this little figure to those six that she kind of slides down the string. That's a sound that's very much associated with gypsy playing, a very much kind of open, warm, and as I said, a sort of sexy character. Yeah. And one of the main reasons why gypsy music became so popular at this time was because there was a hugely influential Hungarian violinist called Joseph Joachim who was a phenomenal player and influenced the style of violin playing so much that he changed the way composers began to write for the violin. And this concerto is actually dedicated to Joseph Joachim. It actually says on the title page, "To dedicated to Joseph Joachim in Freundschaft, it says in German, in friendship. Now that was a big boast for a composer to make in the 19th century, that he was a friend of a superstar like Joseph Joachim. Let's have a look at the beginning of this concerto. We've heard the first theme, but that's not quite how the concerto begins. The beginning is actually quite unusual for a 19th century concerto, because it's normal for a concerto to begin with a really dramatic call to attention. Either you have a big loud chord, a kind of shut up and pay attention sort of beginning. Or you have a very dramatic crescendo building from silence to loud very rapidly. Brooke begins quite differently. There's a quiet drum roll you'll hear at the back. And then a kind of slow, still lamenting figure from the woodwind and the horns. strangely muted beginning for a concerto. It isn't certainly a shut-up-and-pay-attention beginning. But there's one figure in that which is very important for what's going to follow. If you listen to that interval that the woodwinds were playing, da-dee-da-dum, da-dum, that's the interval of the third, a falling and a rising third. Now, when the violin enters immediately after that, what she does is she decorates that third. She weaves patterns around it, but you can still hear that the background, that same third, is the basis of what she's playing. Da, da. It's still the same interval at the back, the third. And if you hear the full passage, you can hear that the violin, in spite of all these incredibly sort of elaborate figures that he's playing, keeps coming back to that interval of the third. Da-da. So there you have it, a kind of dialogue between the soloist and the orchestra. The orchestra plays an idea. Then the soloist develops it, plays with it, meditates with it. Then the orchestra plays it again and the soloist goes over it in a different kind of way, always working around that interval of the third at the basis. Now, after that passage we've heard, immediately after it comes the theme that Alina played right at the beginning of the program. But almost more important than the theme she played is what the orchestra is playing underneath. Now, what the violin plays is so striking that you tend not to notice what the orchestra is doing, but actually it's very important. So we'll have the orchestra play just what they're playing without the violin. Bum, 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 bum. It's that same interval, the third, again. It's the basis of so much that goes on in this music. It's like a kind of figure powering the music forward all the way through this piece. In fact, well, at the end of the first long solo passage in this concerto. Very shortly after that, you hear again how the orchestra take up that third, that same interval, bum 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 bum, and develop it much more dramatically. Yeah, how that third and its rhythm, bom, 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 keeps kind of pushing the music forward. But I said this was a clever piece at the top of the program, and what Brooke does now is also pretty clever, because he takes that interval da the third, and he uses it to spin an entirely new tune, a really wonderful long melody, which again sounds completely free as though it's improvised on the spur of the moment, almost as though the violinist is making it up for us as we listen. But it's constantly circling around that interval of the thirds. In fact, if you listen, the very first two notes the violin is played, da are that falling third, again, just as we heard the orchestra play a second or two ago. There's the third with its distinctive rhythm, bum, 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 again. But it's there absolutely, as I said, throughout that long melody that Alina's just played. Just listen, uh, get Alina to play the last phrase again. If you listen, it's based around exactly the same interval again, that interval of the third. this piece that seems so full of new ideas all the time, constantly improvising new tunes and new developments, is actually basing itself on the same tiny set of musical ideas. They're like seeds which are constantly growing and producing new kinds of plants. Well, after that, there's a huge climax that builds up in which we get some of the most impressive writing for the violinist so far. And this brings us to the point where, in a normal 19th century concerto, a very specific set of things would start happening. Because 19th century concertos were usually written very much according to sets of rules that were things you should do and an audience would expect to hear. And one thing that an audience would have expected to hear in Brook's time was for those tunes that we've heard already, that big long melody, and the first theme we heard that, Alina played at the top of the programme, to come back. We'd hear them again in the home key of G minor, and this would lead to a rounding off of the movement. But Bruch doesn't do that. He builds up tremendously towards the climax. And then, finally, we're just left with what the orchestra were playing in the background underneath the theme, that bum, 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 bum. That's what returns, and that's what builds to the final climax. Comes the moment when that figure in thirds with its typical dotted rhythm, bum, bum bum, has its real final flare up, its final fling. You get this huge last climax, just on the orchestra alone, based on this figure, dum bum, bum bum, which is clearly derived from that rhythm that's been powering the music all the way forward, and yet it's growing in new directions all the time. Brooke is making new ideas out of old ideas all the time. The seed is producing new kinds of plants, new kinds of leaves and flowers, musically speaking. Do the dance! Recognize that theme that the woodwind and the horns are playing at the end there, it's exactly the same theme that they played at the very beginning of the movement. So with all this development, all this putting out of new ideas, new shoots, What Brook has actually created is a gigantic musical circle that ends up at the place where it started from. It's beautifully constructed, and I think when you hear the complete movement, it'll be obvious to you just how beautifully this works, how well it works. It's something that seems to be logical both from the intellectual and the emotional point of view at the same time. I think that when a composer gets both of those right, then you can tell that the music really is working out well. But there's one more clever little twist to come before we get to the next movement, the slow movement. Movement in which there's most melodic material in this concerto. The violin again begins to reflect to meditate on those woodwind phrases that we heard just a moment or two ago. But this time, the, the meditations become, as it were, more active, more dramatic, more clever, more showy. And then suddenly there's a huge sweep up the an enormous rising scale on the violin, and the orchestra plays that da, 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 da figure again. But pointing in a completely new harmonic direction, it sounds like a completely new discovery. <laughs> for the slow movement to begin. But that's in itself also something very clever and unusual that Brook does in this concerto. Because normally in 19th century concertos, the separate movements of a concerto were very much separate. Each one would have a clear start and a clear finish then there'd be a pause, and then a new movement would begin. And sometimes these pauses were very long, and in fact, I read the other day that when Beethoven's Violin Concerto had its first performance, the violinist decided that he would entertain the audience because this concerto was a bit long and boring by improvising, playing the violin upside down. I wonder what Beethoven thought of that. Anyway, uh, that's not what Brooke does. He's led us beautifully by this sort of transitional passage to a pause, an expectant pause, and now the slow movement begins with the most famous tune of all in this slow movement, and it really is deservedly famous. It is a beautiful tune. There's no need for us to sort of take this apart analytically, just perhaps enjoy it really as a kind of gift from God. There's one feature of that tune that I think is worth pointing out because it's another aspect of what makes this concerto a kind of synthesis of gypsy styles. It's a clear use of a gypsy element. Now the violin, as I'm sure many of you know, has got four strings and they're tuned in fifths to G, D, A, and E. And the practice amongst violins until Roundabout Brooks time was that you play a phrase or a tune on whichever string was most convenient, most comfortable to play that tune on. But one thing that gypsies often did for special effect was to play all of a tune no matter how high it was on the lowest possible string and there's a little bit of that here in what Brooke does because there's a figure that 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 little kind of rising figure that Brooke could have asked the violinist to play on the A string it would have been comfortable on the A string and if Alina plays it for us now on the A string you will hear it's nice and bright and sounds very beautiful. But, Brooke asks the violinist to play that figure on the string lower, D. So you actually have to put your fingers higher up the board. And it makes a slightly different kind of sound, a darker and more intense sort of sound. It's a subtle difference, but it's there all the same. Could you play it as as Brooke wrote it for us now? Not quite as bright, and a different kind of emotional character. There are some more striking examples of that later on in the concerto, as we'll hear, particularly in the finale. But now comes a new theme in the slow movement, and this also is a rather interesting one because again, it shows how clever Bruch is in producing material from old ideas in the symphony. Do you remember at the climax of the first movement, there was that figure, pom-pom, 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 which we heard on the orchestra? Well, what he does now is turns that theme upside down. Instead of rising, the intervals fall. So instead of pom-pom, pom-pom, you get, Pum, 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 pum. and that's the new theme and this is how it's introduced by some of the bass instruments bassoons horns cellos and basses So it's a completely new development of an old idea. But Brooke doesn't just introduce that theme simply and say, look, here's the second theme and turn the light on it. He has it emerge while the violinist is still completing what she was doing in the previous passage. It's a kind of dovetailing effect so that a new idea is emerging underneath an old one. And what the violinist does is extraordinarily, there's rising and cascading scales. And if you listen to what she plays after that theme is first heard in the bass instruments, you'll notice that however elaborate and however decorative what Alina plays is, it's all based around that figure. da di da-da, da dam it's there all 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 the time in disguise throughout this passage. And eventually this slow movement comes to a nice round conclusion. It's very obviously the end of the movement. And Bruch could have been conventional here and had another pause and then begun the finale as a separate movement. But again, as with between the first and second movements, he weaves a very skillful transition passage. The finale seems to begin in the same key as the music that we've heard, with a little figure stirring on the violins, dum, da da but there's a crescendo. It builds up louder and louder and louder, and then the violin comes in with one of the most famous themes of all in this concerto, which really seems to sum up the character of the virtuoso violin. Sounds pretty impressive. And there are some really classic violin showcase virtuoso techniques there. Elena, if you just sort of show us an example, first of all, the the first chord you play I think has actually got four notes in it, hasn't it, one one note on each of the four strings. How do you do that? You have to sort of sweep the bow across the string. Only much faster than that. (laughs) Yeah, and then after that you've got thirds I think close together, isn't that right? How hard is it actually to play?
1: Well, it's not that hard. I mean, it's, it's it sounds a lot hard. harder than it really is. It's it sounds so well harder written. than it is. Yeah, it's so, so what's, well written for the violin that.
0: So what's clever about this passage is that Brooke has written it so that you can show off without actually having to work all that hard. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you must be grateful to him for that. <laughs> There's another passage later on where the violinist has to kind of rise up to an incredibly high note on the top of the E string, and the bow keeps bouncing backwards and forwards again. And at the height of this passage, there comes another splendidly singable tune. There are plenty of them in this concerto. This time it's introduced by the orchestra. The violin takes that theme up and this is another example of that gypsy technique of playing everything on the lowest possible string. The violin's lowest string is the G string, which is the one that sounds darkest and most intense of all. And Brooke has the violinist play the whole of that tune on the G string, on the lowest possible string. Now I have heard some not the finest violinists cheat at this passage and play it on higher strings. But Elena is going to play the whole thing on the G string as wrote it and I'm sure you'll hear it It gives it a really incredible wild intensity of sound. A bit like a dark red Hungarian wine. Think of Bull's Blood. I think that's the kind of character we've got here. Yes, it really sounds incredibly intense and full of emotion, that effect of playing it all on the lower string. Well, from that, Bruch works up to a brilliant conclusion. And one thing he does that really is conventional in 19th century terms is he makes sure that some of the most brilliant and impressive writing for the violin is heard right at the end of the concerto, because we certainly want to give her a round of applause when we get to the end of this. So I think he makes sure that we think she's earned it. Well, I hope I've made the point that this is actually a very clever and interesting concerto and that those Critics who dismiss it as being really rather thin and weak and popular are missing the point. And it may not be that Bruch was a great composer, like, say, Brahms or Bruckner, his contemporaries, all the time, but certainly he achieved greatness in this particular work. And that's quite impressive, I think, even just to write one great work in your lifetime is quite an achievement. So I think we can allow him greatness on the basis of this concerto alone, even if none of his other major works have really survived in the repertory. But before we hear the complete concerto, there's a chance if anybody has a question they'd like to ask. Oh, we've got a hand up over here. Yes, please.
1: How many pieces of music did Max Brook write?
0: Ooh, there's a question. He did write a lot. He wrote three symphonies. He wrote three violin concertos. He wrote a huge choral piece called Judith or Judit. And he wrote a lot of chamber music. I can't give you the exact numbers, but I think his the opus numbers by which you identify a piece in terms of when it was written. They get up into the 60s. So I think we can safely say he get, wrote for getting on for around 100 pieces.
1: Um, what time were these pieces wrote? What time period were these pieces wrote?
0: This was written, this concerto was written in 1868, which is the beginning of the period that's often called the late romantic period in music. It was the time when composers like Brahms were writing concertos and these were beginning to be made popular as well. But it was a time of, interestingly, of great, historically speaking, of great prosperity and stability. There were no wars to speak of. And that was the kind of time in which the particularly concerto repertory blossomed because it was the kind of entertainment that appealed to that kind of rising middle-class audience, I think. But 1868 is the date, so it's quite an early work for Bruch because he, be, he lived to 1920, so it was quite an early production. Yes.
1: Elena, how many recordings have you heard of this? And if so, which one is your favorite? You know, the other day I have heard um, a recording by Ivery Gitlis just on radio. And I was totally just overwhelmed. It was amazing. Um, probably the best recording I've heard. Um,
0: Does it help to listen to other people's performances? Of I this? don't
1: usually. Bef- just before I play, I don't listen. So you, try,
0: you try to work it out for yourself yeah, rather than yeah. take it. Do you think it's easy to be influenced by things you've Very
1: heard? Very easy, I think.
0: Yeah, and that's a bit of a danger. Even you if think. you don't
1: realize it, you know?
0: Yeah, you end up repeating it without thinking.
1: Right. What sort of violin are you playing at mm-hmm. the moment? Okay. This is a Peter Guaneri violin, um, and it was made in 1738, so quite a long time ago. Yeah.
0: What sort of things have been done to it since 1738? Is it still basically the same kind of violin? Well, or?
1: it's been the setup has been changed, yes. obviously, because most violins have had that. Um, and other than that, it's been cracked a few times and. <laughs> and, smashed, and yeah. smashed.
0: Wow. But it wouldn't have had the chin rest, would it? No, no, no. chin
1: rest, no shoulder rest wouldn't have been used. Violins the neck associated. would have been shorter.
0: Yeah. So it's not quite the same instrument that it was, but you still obviously like the tone of this instrument. Yeah. Yeah, is it one that you feel is really you?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Did you try a lot of violins before yeah, you lots, found this one?
1: Yeah, lots, lots. I've only had this since July, so.
0: You've only had it since July? Yeah. All right, okay. One more question, I think. God, it's amazing to see how many, so many eager hands.
1: If you could play at any console hall, which one would it be in England? Um, Wigmore Hall, I think.
0: The Wigmore Hall? Yeah. Mm. Why do you like the Wigmore?
1: It's just great to play for strings, I think.
0: The sound. Yeah. So you like the sound of yeah, it. Yeah,
1: very much, yeah.